consider that if you need something to add to your uh, time of personal devotion and, uh, and reading. We'll let that personal time really kind of uh, encapsulate our consideration of each word and, and keep it pretty high level in what we explore today. But before I read the scripture, though, I want us to do a little exercise. As the slide and the title indicate, we're focusing on new neighbors. I want you to think back to a new neighbor that you remember. This could have been a new neighbor that moved in decades ago. Maybe to your childhood neighborhood, maybe when you were a young family and a new neighbor moved in. Maybe their arrival and your relationship with them wasn't life transport life transforming, but maybe it was. I remember in our neighborhood, and, and we, were, we were homeschooled, and so where we were at 55th and Webster between Parallel and Leavenworth Road, Webster's a dead end uh, on the west side of 55th Street. I think there are probably about 10, 11, 12 houses on each side of the street. And so our, our kind of uh, social interaction with kids our age was at church or in the neighborhood. And I can remember that there was one house on what would be the uh, south side of Webster. The very end of the block. We lived on the north side of Webster, the second house down. So this house was almost about as almost as far as you could be from one another and still live on Webster. And there was a kid who lived down there when we were young, probably six, seven, eight years old I was. And there was a kid who lived next to us. Johnny was the one who lived next to us. And the kid at the end of the street was named Dustin. And they were they were they weren't bad kids, but they were just kind of ornery. And one day we found out that Dustin and his family were moving. I don't even know that I ever knew Dustin's last name, but they were moving, and a new family moved in, the Ray last name Ray family, and they had a son who was about my age, whose name was Robert. Robert. Ray, and he was a very uh, athletic basketball player, and we spent all kinds of time playing basketball and football, and I think that pretty well comprised what we did together. But I remember Robert, or Robbie is what he typically went by. Maybe there would be someone in your memory who moved in that you either developed a relationship with or somehow changed the dynamics of the neighborhood. Isn't that interesting how one person arriving can change kind of how things operate for good or for bad within the neighborhood? 
John chapter 1, beginning in the ninth verse. Let's see if I can get it here in my... The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through grace. Or for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Oh God, may our hearts be stirred this morning as we discover truths in your word. May our minds be clear as we strive to apply those truths to our lives. May our hearts tremble at the realization that it is your word that we hear and hold this day. May our ears and hearts be ready to receive your grace, mercy, and love. Amen. The Logos, the Word, is introduced in John's Gospel as the bearer of a special message from God. But that message was originally positioned as John presents it to his readers and in many respects outside of space and time. Remember last week, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, and then he positions him, with God. Located in this way, the Word, the Lord Jesus, remained distant. Maybe even John's word choice is indicative of this. Remember the word that we're translating to word from the Greek, logos, logos. It's a philosophical term, and even last week as I tried to define and describe it for you, I told you that there is some amount of debate as to what the idea of logos or word actually conveyed. And this obstacle of distance between God and creation had long been a problem. This was not what the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is not what they intended in the beginning as conveyed in Genesis. Humanity was created to know and walk with God. You know the passage in Genesis, when Adam and Eve are said to be walking with God in the garden, and then they hide once sin enters the world. With the entrance of sin, that fellowship encountered an obstacle. 
when the holiness of God collided, as it were, with the filth of sin. And distance, as opposed to nearness, was the result. The eternal solution to that problem of distance could not be overcome by a people who just tried harder, by a people who just sinned a little less. The distance that resulted from the entrance of sin into the world could not be overcome by the blood of animal sacrifices. That didn't represent any sort of an eternal solution. John 1.14 conveyed the answer. I love the way that the message translation puts it. The Word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. The Word, the Lord Jesus, this one who had been distant, this logos, this philosophical idea, all of a sudden becomes completely relatable because he comes as a baby. It was that beautiful event that we turned our hearts and minds to as we celebrated already over a month ago, the Christmas season, the Word becoming flesh. This verse is a pivotal reminder of John's account of Jesus as it encapsulates that in the event of the incarnation, in the event of the Word becoming flesh, Jesus encompassed the complexity of the eternal Word into a human. The remainder of the gospel, all that John says from now on, will hinge on both of those things being true. This was not in the person of Jesus. He did not represent a really special human who who aspired to be God. Exclusively. Neither did he represent God who was pretending to be human. He was both fully God and fully human. How does that work? That is, in many ways, I hate to, probably sounds like a cop-out, the mystery of the Incarnation. We can't grasp it because we couldn't do it. It's an element of our faith that requires us to say, hey, Lord, even though I don't understand, and maybe maybe there are dynamics and elements of Jesus as human and Jesus as God that don't make perfect sense to me, I believe. And it makes sense, it makes sense that for the chasm that existed between God and humanity caused by the gulf of sin, it makes perfect sense that you would need someone who was both. Fully God and fully human. And Jesus, the Word, was just that someone. And then, 
to compound just the enormity of what was happening, he moves into the neighborhood. <laughs> All of a sudden, here's this baby, toddler, and adolescent, grows up to be a man living there in Nazareth. Mary and Joseph's kid. Boy, there's something different about him. Hmm? In his announcement of Jesus' arrival, John contrasts that which came from God through Moses, the law, with that which arrived when Jesus moved into the neighborhood. Specifically, John says, grace and truth arrived through Jesus. I want to be careful because there is some, even within the Gospel of John, as I've worked and studied to prepare, there, we're going to run across some times where Jesus is in conflict with the religious leaders. And John references them under the umbrella of the Jews. Okay? And you can appreciate commentators and authors and scholars saying, Pastor, when you preach this, you need to be careful. You need to be careful in not conveying the message that somehow Jesus was uh, uh, maybe what we would call today anti-Semitic. Obviously, Jesus can't be Jewish and anti-Semitic, right? It makes, it makes sense. But, but sometimes you can read John's gospel and come across or walk away thinking, well, there was, it's a good thing Jesus came because within Judaism, there was just no hope at all. Well, there, there may be some element of, of, of truth in the hope that Jesus brought being very different than the hope uh, established or possible through the Jewish faith. I say all that, I take that little excursus to say that John is not writing off. In fact, Jesus will say later on, having to do with the, with the law, that he, he fulfilled the law, right? So in saying that, that Jesus came to bring grace and truth, he's not saying that Moses made no uh, uh, substantial contribution to what God was trying to do in the world. He's not saying that the law had no value. The law is truth. That didn't change in Jesus' arrival. The law remains true. However, what did change was the marriage between grace and truth. No longer is it just truth uh, uh, contrasted with the holiness of God in which we all fall short. But in the person of Jesus, grace arrived as well. While looking back at Jesus' coming and ramifications of it, I, I think it's a good idea to ask about what happens when we, as his followers, move to the neighborhood. When Jesus moved to the neighborhood, everything changed. The neighborhood in Nazareth and surrounding towns in Galilee and eventually to the whole world. Not to overestimate the call on us in regard to the life of Jesus, but I think it's fair to ask. I think it's important for us to ask. What are the ramifications of us arriving in our neighborhoods, so to speak? 
in our workplaces, in our schools, in the errands that we run, in the healthcare providers we visit, in the restaurants in which we eat. Are they better places because we show up there? This grace and truth that Jesus brought, now he asks us as his followers in our various neighborhoods to be people who exude those same traits. So that with each interaction, we ask ourselves, what about us? When people encounter us, do they experience something of the presence of Jesus in human form? The incarnation. Not that we are Jesus, obviously. We simply allow his grace and truth to come through us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. May that continue to be true in and through us this day. Well, though mentioned in the prologue, those first 18 verses of John's gospel, the person that we generally know as John the Baptist uh, really was the subject of our passage last week. You may remember that we used the analogy of a supporting actor to uh, consider John's initial role in the gospel of John. And I confess to you then my ignorance and probably just general lack of appreciation for most things related to film, and and not much has changed in these last seven days as far as that goes. But I do do have kind of an, an interest in assessing the credibility of witnesses. We have 168 hours in a week, and about 40 hours of those 168 are spent, uh, by me at least, working on claims for an insurance company, primarily recreational vehicle claims, so motorcycles and uh, ATVs and uh, golf carts and boats and all that stuff. And most of the claims that I handle have been through the initial claim process where someone calls and has filed a claim and there's been an adjuster assigned who tries to work with the people involved to find out what happened and find out what injuries are being claimed and, and, then, and then work sometimes with an attorney for the injured person to come to some sort of an agreement. And you won't be surprised to know that there are times when the adjuster and the attorney see the value of the claim very differently. And when that happens, the attorney has the right to involve an outside party to help bring some sort of resolution or to progress the claim on to a trial. And that outside party is a court. And a lawsuit is filed. And when a lawsuit is filed, the claim comes to me. And then I work closely with the defense attorney usually and other folks involved in trying to defend most of the time the folk that we insure against this lawsuit that has been filed. That's been my role primarily for the last three years. And as a result, the court and various proceedings all over the country, I think I've 
as I just thought about it, I think I've probably had cases in about 35 of our 50 states. I've learned a lot about the court process, way more than I ever thought that I would know or care about, to be honest with you. But the inner workings of the way a lawsuit and a personal injury claim works. Now, regardless of the type of vehicle involved, whether it is a motorcycle or a boat or a golf cart or an ATV or even sometimes an RV, or the injury, whether it is kind of the classic soft tissue, you know, my back hurts, to very, very serious injuries with long-term hospitalizations, almost always, almost always, the first question that I ask is, what sort of witnesses are involved in this case? What sort of witnesses are involved in this case? To determine the strength of the defenses that we may be able to offer, I have to know the quality or credibility of the people telling the story. On its face, that makes sense to us, doesn't it? I would suggest that anytime someone is providing you information, whether it be of great significance to you or of, eh, that doesn't really matter to me, that you will consider, usually more subconsciously, what qualifications does this person have to provide this information to me? Today, you can go home. In fact, I think you could probably turn on your radio when you leave. And there would be people talking to you for the next five or six hours about a football game that they will not play in. They will not stand on the sidelines of. The vast majority of them will not even be in the stadium. But they will tell you what the Rams need to do to win or what those blasted bangles need to do to win because they have some sort of qualification, at least in their own mind, and whoever hired them to do the job, probably some experience with football in the past or, or, or having played in the past, maybe, they have the qualification to analyze and to predict what is going to happen. There are other folks who provide you information there are people who, after their name, have earned, earned a degree, M.D., medical doctor. Huh? And when it comes to your health and my health, their qualification is higher than, well, mine for sure, <laughs> to assess my own health or, or anyone else's for that matter. But I could, I could log into my Facebook and there are all kinds of folks with thoughts about what I need to do to stay healthy. Some of them more helpful than others. Very few of them qualified to give any sort of, of advice. The credibility of a witness is paramount. Not only to litigated claim files, but to our daily life. 
The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, primarily present John the Baptist as the baptizer, hence his name, John the Baptist. The Gospel of John is different. In fact, as we'll read in just a moment, it's not even completely explicitly clear in John that John baptized Jesus. It could be implied, but in, in the Gospel of John, John's primary role is that of a witness. That of a witness. From John chapter 1, this is a short, this is why it's taking so long to get through John 1, right? I, I chunk them down into short passages. I don't even have the right one listed up there, actually. Should not be John 1, 9 through 18. The verses are right, but my, my heading is wrong. This is John 1, 29 through 34, if you're following along in your own Bible. <clears throat> Here are these words from the Gospel of John. The next day he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen him, and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So, the question is this, at the risk of overlapping my, I guess, my two lives, my two jobs. This is a question that I go over with on most of my claims, sometimes very intentionally, sometimes very directly with the attorney that I'm working with. What makes a credible witness? Should we believe the story that we're hearing from the people involved? Appearance. At the risk of being too earthy or materialistic, the truth of the matter is our first assessment of a person that we don't know, whom we are able to see, is usually through our eyes rather than our ears. In the event of a trial, no one needs to be Miss America, or Mr. Universe. But conclusions may be drawn by the judge or the jury or the one determining the facts based on what someone looks like. Qualifications. When we hear witness, we, we may kind of automatically think of someone who saw the event in question occur. In fact, we may even add in our own mind, eyewitness. Oh, you, you, you saw it, but you weren't involved. Witness in the eyes of the court could mean anyone who provides information 
even the people who are involved in the actual uh, event in question. Other times, someone who was not at the scene but has some sort of expertise may be called as a witness. In that case, his or her qualifications would relate not to the specific incident, but to some subject related to the result of the incident. So there could be a, a medical expert, someone who knows a lot, someone who probably is a doctor or has some, some medical discipline that they specialize in who, who could help uh, people explain or help people understand in a way that they explain the the result of the injury, or, or I've had people who are experts in economics to talk about, well, this person who was injured, uh, because of their injury, they will not be able to make the amount of money that they would have otherwise. Or, or people who can reconstruct an accident using physics that are well beyond my ability to comprehend to explain the force and velocity of an accident and the likelihood that whatever happened in their mind happened because of X, Y, or Z. So, appearance, qualifications. What gives you the right to tell me how I should understand what happened? And then, like, uh, lastly, presentation. How is the witness able to describe the event? Are they believable? Hmm? Ideally, in the cases that I handle, your witness hits two of the three. <laughs> In a perfect world, your witness, whatever side you are taking, hits all three. If your witness only has one, eh, you got, you got a little bit of a long shot. Well, what about John the Baptist? If his role was witness, was he credible? I think I think if there was a trial, as it were, about Jesus and who Jesus was, and obviously eventually that did occur, John the Baptist wasn't able to stand as his witness because they killed him. However, if John the Baptist was called before a judge or a jury or Pilate or Herod, he'd be something of a wild card. Those assessing his qualifications would have a lot to overlook when it came to his appearance, wouldn't they? His living situation and his diet, but his qualifications, his qualifications to provide a witness about who Jesus was could not be any better. His endorsement of Jesus as the one sent by God to take away the sin of the world came, over, came as a result of him seeing Jesus be baptized. In summary, John said, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. You think about the various witnesses that God chose to use throughout the account of Scripture and even during the life of Jesus. Next week, we're going to consider Jesus calling, as it were, his first disciples. 
What an odd group. And John the Baptist, to think that John the Baptist would be the, the first witness of Jesus, the expectation would have been, well, how does God speak? God speaks to the religious leaders and the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, where, where are they? They're in the temple or maybe in the synagogues. Where was John the Baptist? Remember how he described himself last week when he was explaining who he was and when he said, we said he was a, a great supporting actor? He was this, this anonymous voice crying in the wilderness. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God, and the first one to announce him was a voice in the wilderness. Sometimes the witnesses that God chooses to use come as a little bit of a surprise. Rather than the pomp and circumstance of the temple, the introductory witness for Jesus is a locust-eating, camel-skin-wearing wilderness wanderer. In the economy of God's kingdom, witness criteria is a bit different than present-day litigation, isn't it? God is looking for people willing to tell their stories. So, what's your story? Maybe you believe that God would be unlikely to use you because your story is, is not as dramatic as others. Maybe your story is one of the grace of God being present in your life before your first breath was drawn. Because God, in his omnipotent grace, placed you in a family in which God was honored and you learned about Jesus from your earliest memories. Your story may include little drama and seem somewhat mundane in some respects as you have learned to walk with the Lord through the decades of your life. You might think that your story could not possibly be used by God. Well, lovingly and respectfully, my dear brothers and sisters, you're wrong. God wrote your story in order to use your story. Let's be faithful and credible witnesses of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.